The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Appreciate you joining with us to study this morning. We're currently looking at what is called the Upper Room Discourse that covers chapter 13 through 17 of the Gospel of John. Now, this particular teaching is only found in the fourth Gospel. The synoptics don't mention the stuff that's in this discourse. And these five chapters take place in one evening. It's the last night of the Lord's life. Later on, after He's done with this teaching, He goes out, He's arrested, He has a mock trial, and by 3 p.m. that day, he's put to death on the 14th of Nisan. So it's the 14th right now through this discourse. It's the 14th of Nisan. It's the beginning. Remember, their their day began at sundown. So their day is just beginning. In the middle of the night, he'll be arrested. He will die as the true Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. So this is his last night. And he's with his disciples And he's teaching them. Now, the teaching we find in these chapters is directed to believers. Very important that you understand that. And love becomes one of the key words in this section. You know, we've seen the word love only used seven times in chapters 1 through 12. But we're going to see it 30 times in 13 through 17. There are more references to the Savior's love for his own here than anywhere in the Bible. This discourse begins with the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, okay? And our Lord is washing the disciples' feet. We've gone over that. And while He's washing their feet, or just prior to Him washing their feet, they're sitting around arguing over which one of them is the greatest. Wouldn't you like to have that recorded as your discussion with someone? Which one of us is the greatest? (laughs) Those are things you don't want people to know about, right? <laughs> so there they're arguing, and so he, you know, disrobes, takes on the, the clothing of his slaves, and begins to wash their feet. <clears throat> and he tells them, I've given you an example that you should do as I have done. Now, he's not saying here, at least I don't believe, that all Christians ought to wash each other's feet. That's not the point. The point is he's taking the role of a servant and he's serving. He's doing a task in that day that needed to be done. And he, what he's, I think he's saying is, listen, all of us as believers should humbly serve one another. We should be meeting the needs of one another. This is about humble service, not some little ritual that you do. This is a call for them to show love in various forms of service, even to the point of laying down their lives for one another if that's necessary. That's what He's going to do. Then the Lord says something that is rather shocking. He says, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I've chosen, but the Scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He wasn't speaking to all of them because there was an unbeliever in their midst. There was a disciple who had not been chosen for salvation. Now listen, he was chosen as an apostle. He was not chosen for salvation. 
One from the very group is going to betray the Lord just as Ahithophel had done to David. But this shouldn't be a shock to us because it's prophesied. This betrayal was a fulfillment of Scripture. And that's what he says. The Scripture will be fulfilled. He says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place. Then when it does take place, you'll believe that I am He. See, Yeshua knew that once Judas betrayed Him, it was going to be a shock to the rest of the apostles. Okay? I mean, how could Yeshua be God's Son and not know there was a traitor in the midst? How could He have all knowledge and yet choose this traitor to be part of them? So He prepared His disciples in advance for what's going to happen. I want you to know this, He says. So later, when it does happen, you'll say, oh, He he knew this. He understood this. See, after Christ's resurrection, when they reflected on Yeshua's prediction of the betrayal, the disciples would come to see that He was in complete control of the situation, even the betrayal. And that's why He says, you may believe that I am. Yeshua is God. He's in control of even the betrayal by Judas. And He goes, when when this happens later, you know that I predicted it, you're going to say, you're going to believe that I'm God. That's what He's meaning by when He says that I am. So He's warning them ahead of time because it's going to be hard to believe that one of the twelve is turning against Him. For three years, Judas was thought to be one of the closest friends and disciples of Yeshua. The inner group trusted him so much, they made him the treasurer. So when Yeshua announced at the Last Supper that one of them was going to betray him, they didn't have a clue that it was Judas. They didn't know. Let me remind you that we have information that the twelve did not have. Okay? And often we read our Bible, we read into it things that we shouldn't at that time period yet. Okay? These guys don't know Judas. No one knows Judas is the bad guy. Alright? He's just one of them. They don't know that. We know it because the first time his name's mentioned in the New Testament, it tells us. Okay? Every time his name's mentioned. Matthew 10, 4 says, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him? How'd you like to have that tacked onto your name? Every time your name is said. Who betrayed him? The betrayer. Listen, today, most people know about Judas and his betrayal, even if they've never read the Bible. Even if they're not Christians. They know about Judas. Who do you know that names their son, or even their dog for that matter, Judas? You know, it's not a name we use because it's we don't like that name. That's not a good connotation. We know about Judas, but it's hard for us to get in our mind the disciples had no clue. He's just one of the guys. Alright? So the whole story, time we're reading the story, we're thinking, oh, he's the bad guy. He's the... They don't know that. So we can't read in our knowledge until it happens, okay? Alright. Let's look at the mentions of Judas so far in this Gospel. You say, well, we know it because we've been studying this Gospel. And in 671, he says he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, this is the first mention of Judas in the fourth gospel, and he is intimately identified, immediately, I mean, identified as the betrayer. As one who's going to betray Yeshua. 
Now, this statement is another one of Lazarus' post-resurrection insights. They didn't know this at the time. All right, he's just saying, this is kind of an editorial comment here, all right? This is the one that's going to betray him. And then we see in 12.4, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who was about to betray him. Again, this is an editorial comment. They didn't know this. And then in 13.2, during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Again, it's something that Lazarus tells his readers that was not known at the time. So, let's try to put together the life of Judas and just look at his life from what we see in the Scripture. We pull the different accounts together um, and what we find in the Gospel. First of all, we know that Judas is chosen to be one of the twelve. Remember, the Lord went out, prayed all night, He picked him. wasn't an accident, He picked him. And then as one of the twelve, He is sent out with all the rest of them. Matthew 10.4 tells us that. They're all sent out on ministry. For over three years, Judas is spending 24-7 with Yeshua and with the rest of the disciples, the rest of the apostles. And again, like I said, they obviously trusted Him because he's put in charge of the treasury. But he begins to steal from it. And they don't know that. Again, an editorial comment that John tells us. Oh yeah, he was treasury and he was taking money out of it. Then we see Judas objecting to Mary's very extravagant worship of Yeshua, citing, hey, that, that money could be given to the poor. You know, he sounds spiritual. And the other guys are probably thinking, yeah, Judas... That's a good idea. We didn't think of that. You're so spiritual. Well, Lazarus gives, again, an editorial comment. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Again, they didn't know this information. Now, because of our Lord's growing popularity as a result of raising Lazarus from the dead, the Pharisees go into overdrive trying to get rid of him. We've got to get rid of this guy. And shortly after this incident with Mary... Judas goes to the chief priests and he strikes a deal with them to betray Yeshua, to hand him over to them. So Judas begins to look for the right moment to hand Yeshua over to the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, in our text in John 13, we find Judas is with Yeshua and the disciples at the Last Supper. At the meal, as we're going to see in a minute, Yeshua indicates that one of the disciples is going to betray him. And by means of dipping a piece of bread and handing it to Judas, our Lord indicates that Judas is the one who's about to betray him. Well, we see in our text that Judas accepts the bread from Yeshua, after which Satan, the Bible says, immediately possesses him. And then Yeshua dismisses Judas to carry out the betrayal. He says, go, go do what you got to do. So Judas then leads the soldiers to Yeshua, where he identifies Yeshua by kissing him. Betrayed by a kiss. Later, Judas regrets the betrayal and he tries to reverse his action by returning the money, but it's too late, so he goes out and he hangs himself. Now, have you ever come across the conflict, you know, you read in the Gospels, Judas hanged himself. Then you get to Acts and it says what? He fell headlong and his guts burst out and all this, then you're saying, well, did he hang himself? Yes, okay. If you were to hang yourself that day, you'd probably be on a cliff somewhere on a tree branch, and the tree branch breaks, and you know, after the body's been there for a while, and you got this body swelled up and it just busts open. So he hung himself. Judas killed himself. All right. Remember, he is a, a, 
he was the antitype of Ahithophel, and Ahithophel also hung himself. All right? Now, think about this with me for a minute. Judas is chosen to be an apostle, and he is with them the whole time. He's one of the twelve. For three years, he's with Yeshua. He's listening to his teaching. He's seeing the tenderness of his compassion and love. He's with him every day. You know, they didn't have discipleship classes, okay? Yeshua didn't say, okay, you apostles, you show up on Wednesdays, okay? From uh, 7 to 9, we're going to have discipleship training. They just lived together, okay? The disciples and the rabbi was, we're with the rabbi all the time. Wherever he does, we're with him, okay? We want to be there. We want to learn about it. We want to see how he reacts to every situation. We want to see how he handles every situation. That's discipleship. We're with him. We're following him. We're, we're going to learn how he lives life. Judas saw the water turned into wine. He saw the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the deaf ears open, the mute tongues loosed, the demon eyes delivered. He even saw the dead raised. He was present when Yeshua called Lazarus forth from the grave. He saw lepers healed of their flesh-rotting disease. He helped pass out loaves and fish when Yeshua fed the multitudes. He was there when Yeshua walked on the water to the boat, and the boat instantly was at the shore, teleported. He was there. He'd heard the demons confessing Yeshua to be the Son of God. Listen, yet in spite of all the privileges, He never came to faith in Christ. Never. And what this says to me, and what it should say to all of us, We're reminded of the sovereignty of God in salvation. Here's a man that had every, he's with the Lord, helping him, serving him, ministering with him, doing it, but he's not a believer. And you're like, why? Why didn't Judas come to faith in Christ? I'll tell you why. John 6 44. Yeshua said, No one, not some, not a few, no one can come to me. Nobody comes to Christ unless, what's the stipulation? The Father who sent me draw him. Hell kuo, unless God draws you with irresistible superiority. You don't come. In other words, God has to change your heart. With all Judas saw, with all Judas knew, he could not come to Christ because he was not drawn to the Father. You cannot go through this gospel without seeing the absolute sovereignty of God over salvation, over everything. All right? This is not a book for Arminians. Okay? It's just not. All right. With that, some background on Judas. Let's look at our text. After saying these things, Yeshua was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. After saying these things, after saying that he's not speaking to all of them because he knows, you know, there's someone there who really isn't chosen and that the scriptures are going to be fulfilled in this. After saying these things, it says he was troubled in his spirit. Now, trouble here is the Greek word tarasso, which literally means to stir or agitate. It's used this way in John 5 4 of the angel stirring the water in the pool of Bethesda. Now, in a figurative sense, It could be translated as anguish, terrified, 
frightened, horrified. It's a strong word. Listen, people, Yeshua is very troubled at this time. This demonstrates, again, His humanness, His humanity. And this is the third time in John's Gospel that Yeshua has been described as being greatly distressed. We see this word used at the burial site of Lazarus as He stands there. His friend, the one He loves, is gone. Later on in chapter 12, the soul of our Lord was greatly distressed at the prospect of His hour coming. The hour of His suffering. He's troubled by that. And here our Lord is greatly distressed at the thought of one of His own followers, someone He's been close to, someone who's been with Him for over three years, is going to betray Him to death. I'm sure we've all experienced betrayal on some level. It's not fun, but when someone you're really close to, someone you spent all the time with, does this, it's a very hard thing to take. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, he had spoken only briefly about the betrayal until now. Now he tells his disciples specifically that one of them is about to betray him. This declaration must have hit them like a punch in the gut. Okay? Look at the response. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. They're like, they're all looking around the room. Somebody in this room, and they are clueless. Let me ask you something. What does this tell you about Judas? They had no clue it was Judas. Okay? Nobody raised their hand and said, I know, I know, it's Judas. No, they didn't have a clue. They were shocked. They're stunned. They're looking around like, who is it? Clueless. He's stealing their money. They don't know that. He's not a believer. They don't know that. Sometimes people, you know, we think we know things that we don't really know. All right? Everything that Judas did appeared to be loyal devotion of a disciple. He had everyone convinced he was a follower. Except Yeshua. Yeshua knew. Now, the Synoptic Gospels provide us with a significant detail here that I think is kind of interesting. When informed that one of them should betray him, they didn't all point at Judas. No one knew. Look what they did say. Matthew 26, 21-22. As they were eating, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? Lord, is is it me? Listen, they went from the arrogance of arguing over who's the greatest to this humility of saying, could it be me? Lord, it's not me, is it? I'm not the one who's going to... I mean, there's this humility, there's this fear here like, I hope it's not me. It's amazing. They're not pointing the fingers at each other. They're looking internally. This is amazing to me. And this is such a shift from their arguing over who's the greatest. They don't, they don't trust themselves. Ah, people, this is, this is people who have some clue about their own life. Because when you think you stand, the Lord said, take heed lest you fall. You know, we have to be careful. And they're, they're not really certain. They know their own hearts and they said, well, could it possibly be me? And one of his disciples, whom Yeshua loved, was reclining at the table at Yeshua's side. All right? 
Now, here we come across for the first time in Scripture, the disciple whom Yeshua loved. This is the first of five times that reference is going to be made to this disciple. And I, I'm sure by this time you know who I think this is, right? We've been talking about this for a long time now. I believe this is the author of the fourth gospel. This is John Eleazar, a.k.a. Lazarus. All right? Now, there's a lot of discrepancy on that. A lot of people, of course, say, oh, it's John the Apostle, and there's people who say it's somebody else. Just study it, okay? But let me tell you what we know for sure, okay? In John 21.20, the writer mentions the disciple whom Yeshua loved, and then he states that this is the disciple who wrote the letter. He says in 21.24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. Now he says, the antecedent of this here is the disciple that Yeshua loved in verse 20. So we know who wrote the Gospel. It was the disciple whom Yeshua loved. The very one mentioned in our text. Listen, there's no question about that. Nobody argues that. No one I've ever read questions. The disciple whom Yeshua loved wrote this. The question is, who is the disciple whom Yeshua loved? That's where the argument comes, alright? But, it seems to me if you compare things that are going on in this text, it seems kind of obvious, at least it does to me, that who it is. For example, if you go to John 11, um, it seems like the author went to great lengths in John 11 to let you know, three times he says it, that Yeshua loved Lazarus. Now some people might think, well that's not really a big deal, is it? Well it is when you take this fact in consideration. Lazarus is the only man named in Scripture who was loved by Yeshua. That's it. So he goes in chapter 11 three times. He loved him. Yeshua loved Lazarus. Now, so that's, that's a pretty big deal, I think. I want you to know something I think is very significant. John 12 is the last time we hear of Lazarus. After 12, this celebrity, and he was a celebrity because after he rose from the dead, everyone wanted to see him. You know, everyone, everybody, they're flocking to him. After chapter 12, he disappears from the Scripture. You never hear another word about him. This good friend of Yeshua, this man that Yeshua loved, and raised from the dead, disappears. This is the last time we hear him. 12.2 So they gave a dinner for, the, for, the, <clears throat> for him there. Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table. So the last time we see Lazarus, he's reclining at the table with Yeshua having dinner. Then he disappears from the pages of Scripture. And what's really interesting is right after Lazarus' name disappears, someone else appears that we've never heard of before. He disappears, someone reappears. Who appears? One of the disciples whom Yeshua loved was reclining at the table. So the last time we see Lazarus, he's reclining at the table with Yeshua. The first time we see the disciple whom Yeshua loved, he's reclining at the table with Yeshua. The only man named in the Bible as being loved by Yeshua abruptly vanishes from this Gospel. And the only disciple singled out as being loved by Yeshua abruptly appears in the same Gospel. It's my contention that the disciple whom Yeshua loved is Lazarus. That seems evident here. And I think you'd agree that the, late, the raising of Lazarus from the dead was a profound event in the life of Yeshua. He's dead for four days. He's 
Decom- decomposition has come in. The Jews believed that after three days, the spirit left. So they waited four days. Let's make sure this guy's really dead. Brings him back to life. This is a big deal. Yet this remarkable miracle is not named in one of the synoptics. Matthew, Mark, Luke don't give us a hint of this miracle. They don't give us a hint of Lazarus. They never named Lazarus as a friend that Yeshua had. They totally don't even talk about him. What's up with that? Okay? Strangely enough, it turns out that there's another prominent figure in the life of Yeshua who is also nowhere found in the Synoptic Gospels. You know who that is? It's a disciple whom Yeshua loved. So we don't hear a word about Lazarus in any of the Synoptics, not a word about the disciple whom Yeshua loved in any of the Synoptics. Is that simply a coincidence, people? It's a little too strong for me, okay? To just be a coincidence. Now, just so you understand that I'm not the only one who believes this, okay? There's other people who believe that Lazarus wrote this gospel. Notice what uh, Hall Harris writes. He says, some have suggested that the disciple to be identified with Lazarus, okay? The disciple whom Yeshua loved, that's what he's talking about. He says, with us. So I'm like, oh, cool. So there's other people, you know. He's not saying he believes this, okay? He's saying there are some who do. Since the fourth gospel specifically states that Jesus loved him. And again, chapter 11, there's the three times. And again, I think that's important. All right, specifically says he loves him, the only person, only man. From the terminology alone, he says this is a possibility. So he's leaving it open. Yeah, maybe Lazarus did write it. The evangelist is certainly capable of using language in this way to indicate the connections. Okay, so so far so good. Well, then he says this, okay? But there's nothing else to indicate that Lazarus was present at the Last Supper. You see what his whole argument is? His whole argument is Lazarus wasn't there. How do you know? Were you there? No, but he says, well, Mark 14, 17 seems to indicate that it was only the twelve who were with Jesus at this time. And we have no indication in the fourth gospel to the contrary. As I said in our study of John 13, 12 through 17, if you just look at Mark's gospel, you're going to get the idea that just Yeshua and the twelve were in that upper room. Why is that? That's because Mark concentrates his attention on the twelve and rarely mentions any other disciples. But if you go into Luke's Gospel, you find out every time Yeshua, no matter where he is, he's got a bunch of disciples with him. And I don't see there's any reason to think he's alone with the twelve. Alright, at this upper room. Okay, so Paul Harris brings up the idea that there's others who believe this. Now, the Faith Life Study Bible says this. One whom Jesus loved. This is the first reference to this disciple who could be the Apostle John, Lazarus, or another follower. So at least he leaves it open. Hey, this could be Lazarus. He leaves that, you know, open. And I give you this simply to let you know that there's others who entertain the idea. There's others who've seen this. You know, tradition can blind us. And when you open your Bible to the Gospel of John, it says the Gospel of John. And so you say, well, then John must have wrote. But that, was, that title wasn't there, okay? And John is not mentioned in this book anywhere. All right, the disciple, the only person we know who wrote this book was the disciple whom Yeshua loved. And like, I just think people are hard pressed to prove that it's anybody other than Lazarus. All right, but I would encourage you to study for yourself and come to your own conclusions. All right, he says he was reclining at the table at Yeshua's side. Now, the disciple 
that Yeshua love was reclining right next to him. The synoptic gospels, they don't give us this information again. The little Greek here is reclined in the bosom of Yeshua. So Lazarus is most likely on the right side of Yeshua, and Judas is on the left. Now to be on the right and the left hand during this meal, these are prime positions. These are important positions. And the text makes it clear that they're reclining in the typical Palestinian fashion around a table. They're not sitting as Western people do with chairs pulled up underneath the table. The table would be very low, and they would stretch out on cushions that were on the floor, pillows like that they'd lay on. And the customary method was to lay on your left side, you're laying on these pillows, kind of reclining, and you use your right hand to eat with. So there, you know, you got another person laying here and your feet are going out. You know, that's why they wash their feet, because they're not far from somebody else's head. Okay? You don't want nasty, smelly feet. So they're laying there, enjoying their meal. Now, just to set the record straight, Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper was not a photograph taken at this event. Okay? And this is, people, this, we get more of our understanding of things from a picture like this than we do from the truth of Scripture. And this will, you know, taint our thinking. There were not 12 people sitting on one side of the table looking at the camera. You know? And, and listen, this, this proves my argument. If they say there's only 12 there with, with Yeshua, then who took the picture? Somebody else has to be there, right? Okay, you guys all get on that side of the table. Here's what blows my mind, people. Culturally, there are so many things wrong with this picture. So many things. What do you see here that's wrong? Anybody? Give me... Okay. <laughs> okay, a bunch of old guys. I said this before. I believe the disciples were teenagers. Okay? I think Peter was probably 20 or over 20. Peter was the oldest of the disciples. That's why he was the spokesperson most of the time. And in, in Matthew 17, at the end of the chapter, him and Peter are talking. He tells Peter to go fishing and catch a fish and take the coin out of his mouth and pay the two drachma temple tax for me and you, Peter. And you're thinking, well, what about the rest of the guys? Well, who had to pay the tax? Only those who were 20 and over. So these other disciples didn't have to pay the tax because they're under 20. So these disciples were teenagers. And look at it, you got a bunch of old guys sitting around the table here. All right, What else is wrong with this picture? What? Okay, they're at a table. They're sitting at a western table, slid underneath. You know, this is... This, no! They're all on one side. Really? I guess no one wanted to get the back of their head shot. You know, so they all... But the funny thing is, the cameraman should have waited, got them to at least look at them. You know, look up here and smile, all right? What else is wrong with it? Uh, yeah, I'm not really sure about that. It might not have been that colorful. I think you're probably right there. Uh, what? They're all white people. How many Middle Easterners do you look like that? Okay, no. But you know, this is you know, this is what we how we envision things. Something else is really wrong. No one sees it in the picture. Look out the window. What what do you see out the window? It's light. This is taking place at night, people. This dinner is at nighttime. The sun's gone down. That's why it's now the 14th of Nissan. All right? So culturally, this picture is a mess, but, you know. Don't get your theology from Leonardo, okay? <laughs> All right, let's move on. 
24, he says, So Simon Peter mentioned to him to ask Yeshua of whom he was speaking. So he said, you know, one of you guys going to betray me? And he said, well, who's he talking about? So that disciple, leaning back against Yeshua, said to him, Lord, who is it? Now, evidently, Peter was somewhere across the table from Yeshua and Lazarus here. And Lazarus, Lazarus catches on that Peter's saying, hey, who was who he talking about? So Yeshua answered, it's he whom I will give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave to Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot. Alright? It's he to whom I give the morsel. Now the word morsel here, somion, which is a unique New Testament Greek word that refers to a tasty morsel that was given by the host to a special honored guest. you got to hang on to that, people. This is given to an honored guest. So here we have another remarkable act of kindness toward Judas. People, Judas is about to go out and betray the Lord to death. And he's about to do that, and the Lord takes this morsel and He hands it to Judas and in honor of him. When I, when I look at this, to me, this is a picture of what the Lord says, love your enemies. He knows, you know, he knows, he's full aware of what's going to happen, and he honors him at this meal. Now, the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible, like I, I keep telling you, this is an excellent reference, says this, for Jesus, as head of the gathering, to dip and hand to Judas, openly honors Judas. He's honoring him. Because Jesus is able to dip the piece of bread and hand it to Judas, Judas apparently shares the same table with Jesus, and it's presumably to Jesus' left. And banquets, a position to the left, was a position of special honor. So he's sitting in an honored position. He's honored with the morsel. It's, this is amazing. It appears that the conversation that's going on about the morsel is just between Yeshua and Lazarus. This would mean that Judas received the morsel with only the beloved disciple knowing it was a sign that he was going to betray him. The rest weren't in on this conversation. All the rest of the disciples, and perhaps even Judas himself, just saw it as a special honor. Extended to him. Because, you know, Lazarus, a.k.a. the disciple whom Yeshua loved, he's leaning right there. He's on. You know, they're talking. They're whispering. They're not, the rest of them are not, you know, hearing what's going on here. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. Again, Judas is obviously right next to him because he hands him this, all right? Seated to the left. Matthew 26, 25 seems to indicate that Yeshua could speak to him without being overheard by the rest of the group because he's right there. They're laying on each other, basically. Now, think about this. This is an act of honor. Yeshua is honoring him by giving him this. And when Judas is receiving this morsel, this act of honor, sitting at this left side, he has to know that Yeshua knows that he's going to betray him. So he's receiving this, and in his mind, he's got to be thinking, oh man, he's got to know that I'm the betrayer, and yet he just keeps treating me so good. You know? I mean, he'd seen Yeshua over the years. He knew that he could read men's hearts and minds, he knew what was going on. And he's about to go out and betray him. And Yeshua still shows him love. After all the time they spent together. Back in chapter 2, he knew that, you know, the Bible says he knew it was in the hearts of men. In chapter 5.42, it says he knew 
that the ones who were didn't love him. So Judas knows that Yeshua knows that he's a betrayer. And this must have been, you know, pretty tough to deal with, I think. Verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Yeshua said to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Now, one commentator writing about this verse says this. Up until the point of time reported in verse 27, Judas could have pulled out of his betrayal of Yeshua. What do you think of that? Could he have pulled out of it? Well, Yeshua said the Scripture will be fulfilled, so could Judas say, I'm not going to let the Scripture be fulfilled. I'm going to pull out of this deal. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get saved. I'm going to trick them all. How could Judas have chosen to not fulfill the Scriptures? How could he have chosen to break prophecy? Listen to me. The commentator who wrote this wrote this because man's free will is so important to people that they will ignore the Scripture to hold on to it. And to say that Judas at this point could have pulled out. Where have you been the whole... Have you read the rest, the previous, you know, 12 chapters of this book? Have you read chapter 6? Where Yeshua kept telling the people, don't worry about it, you can't believe in me. They're turning away and He goes, that's all right." He even made them turn away. A big group following me. He goes, listen, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have any part of me. And they're like, ah, and they're leaving. He's driving them away. Why? Because they can't come unless they're drawn. And if you're drawn, you're coming. But we got the people that are going to hang on to free will. Because that's so important. I got to have my will and make my choices. Your choice is not going to be a good one. Okay? God needs to make the choice. Because nobody comes to Him unless He's drawn to the Father. And it says, Satan entered into Him. Now, this is the only mention of Satan by name in this Gospel. Um, if you remember in 13.2, he said, talks about the devil. And now we have Satan. Luke 22.3 uses the same ter- terminology of Satan entering Judas, but indicates that it happened at the, before the Last Supper at the time when Judas uh, made his deal with the authorities. So maybe he entered and left a couple times. I don't know. But what is going on here? Who is this? Who's Satan and who's entering him? Again, like I said, this is the first time this is brought up in this gospel. So there, there's so much, you know, things in the Bible you think are obvious. Some people want to, you know, there's a group today that says, you know, there is no supernatural beings other than God. There's no angels, there's no demons, there's no Satan, there's no none of that stuff. These names all refer to, you know, different personalities or your deprived nature or something. They got some excuse, all right. Listen, Satan is a supernatural being, okay? So let me give you a, a brief Satanology, okay? From the New Testament, we learn, and we only learn this from the New Testament. If you go back to the Tanakh and read the Tanakh and you read about Satan, Satan is not a bad guy in the Tanakh, okay, for the most part. He is the accuser. He has a role that he plays. But he's not really the bad guy. We get that when we get to the New Testament. So in the New Testament, we find out that the serpent in the garden, the devil and Satan are one and the same. And you're not going to find that out until you get to Revelation. Revelation 20, verse 2. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. We don't know that until we come here. 
Again, but we read that back into the garden when we're reading the garden account in Genesis, all right? So here we see that the serpent of Genesis 3 is Satan. It's not a snake, okay? It's not some animal. It is a divine being. He was a throne room guardian, if you will. He was a seraph. He was a serpentine being. He was one who was part of the divine council in Eden. Now, if you're not familiar with the divine council, you go to our website. We've got a separate section in the study section on the divine council, and you can understand that you know God was not alone. He created these beings to be with Him as a family, His divine council. And what happens in the garden is that Satan decides to deceive humanity. He wants humanity to disobey God, so God will kick them out of the garden. The garden is God's dwelling place. The garden is God's home. It's God's family. He's there with the divine council. Well, the divine council, some of them at least, they don't like man in there. I mean, they've been with God for we don't know how long, sharing fellowship. And all of a sudden, God brings this guy, these humans in there, and they're like, hey, we don't like this. We're getting rid of you. Why? What was the purpose of that? I think the Scriptures, I think the pseudepigrapha hints at jealousy. They were jealous. The pseudepigrapha, no doubt, claims it was jealousy. All right, They talk over and over about this. All right, The book, a pseudepigrapha book called The Life of Adam and Eve elaborates on the motive of Satan. In chapter 16 it states this, And we were grieved when we saw you. Uh, Satan's talking. He's talking to Adam. We were grieved when we saw you in such joy and luxury. When they saw them in the garden with God. We, we were grieved. And with guile, he says, I cheated your wife. And through her action caused you to be expelled from your joy and luxury as I have been driven out of my glory. So they want him out of there. So the divine being, Satan, seems to have been jealous of man. So he gets him kicked out of the cosmic mountain. Gets him kicked out of God's presence. Well, right after that, Yahweh promises, I'm going to fix this. Okay, yes, you messed up, man. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to bring Adam and Eve, I'm going to bring mankind back into my fellowship, back into my presence. And he says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. Eve's seed, a human being, is going to come and fix what Adam has done. He's going to be a second Adam. He's going to be the last Adam. A deliverer is going to come. And it's my understanding that when this prophecy was made, see the gods, these gods, fallen gods, these anti-Yahweh forces, we got them kicked out, great. And then, oh, God gives them a promise. I'm going to bring them back. Uh, What do we do now? So what was their next step? We're going to fix this. So in Genesis 6, the sons of God come down from heaven They marry and have marital relations with the daughters of men and produce a hybrid offspring that's half man, half God. Nephilim, the Bible says. They're hybrids. Now the Enochian texts of the intertestamental period and the New Testament both tell us that these watchers had a plan to disrupt God's plan. First of all, they raised up a seed to corrupt and oppose the people of God. In other words, we're going to corrupt the human seed... So the Redeemer can't come through it because the seed is corrupted now. All right. Secondly, the Watchers helped humanity destroy themselves. All right. These Watchers corrupted mankind by teaching them all kinds of things they weren't supposed to know. Things about magic, things about technology. 
they seduced him with all kinds of sexual ideas. This is, if you want to read this, 1 Enoch chapter 7, verses 1 through 6 talks about all this. In other words, these divine beings are teaching humans things that they weren't supposed to know. And they're corrupting the race. So we have Satan corrupting man, get him kicked out of the garden. Then God comes up with a plan. Then Satan and his gang comes up with a counter plan. We're going to wipe them out. And so they got this corruption going on. So God says, well, you corrupted my plan. I'm going to fix your plan by sending the flood and wiping out all those Nephilim. All right? And the flood didn't get them all because I think there was a second incursion. That's my position right now. You know, because I think the flood did wipe them out. That's the purpose of it. I think God accomplishes what he needs to purpose. But I think they came back and did it again. And so God used David and they wiped out any one of the giants. You know, everywhere David went, God's saying, kill them all. Why? Because there's Nephilim in there. Okay? There's giants in there. We've got to wipe out this race. So he says, all right, so the flood and the holy wars wiped this out. And then the God man, Yeshua, comes and provides redemption for His elect. Now, I want you to notice what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians. And you can read this and never see this, so hopefully I'm, you know, I want you to think about this anyway, alright? Yeah, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age. Now, this age is the age they lived in. Not our age, their age, alright? We, we live in what the Bible calls the age to come nor the rulers of this age, so that age had rulers, who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age understood. So God's got a wisdom and the rulers, they don't get it. For if they had understood it, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now rulers here, who are they? Well, most people just say, well, these are the Jewish rulers. That's possible. But, I think this is a reference to the spirit beings, the watchers, the spiritual rulers, the anti-Yahweh forces. In the Greek translation of Daniel, a text many scholars consider even older than the Septuagint currently in use, the prince of Persia and Israel's prince Michael are both described with the Greek word archon. That's the term that Paul uses here for rulers. And he says they're rulers of this age. Now Paul talks about this age being an age of law, being an age of condemnation, being an age of death. Now, the rulers, he says, of this age didn't know what God's plan was. In other words, Satan comes, enters into Judas to get Judas to carry out this plan to kill Messiah. But he says, listen... If Satan had known, watch, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Why? Because that, that completed the plan. That was God's plan. He thought, I'm going to circumvent the plan again. I'm going to kill the Messiah. Guess what? You just completed the plan. That provided the redemption. But they didn't know. And so here in our text, we see Satan entering into Judas because he doesn't know. He doesn't understand. He is the God of that age. And that age is coming to an end. See, <coughs> excuse me. See, the wisdom and the rulers of this age were about to end because that age was about to end. That was an old covenant age. It ended in AD 70. He is speaking of the spiritual archon, which are about to be judged at the end of the old covenant age. 
These rulers would shortly have no realm to rule in because this age is about to end. At the cross, these spiritual beings were defeated, at Pente- were defeated, and then at Pentecost, Yahweh begins to reclaim the nations for Himself. See, only if you understand back in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, that God separated the nations. He walked away from all the nations because of their sin, and He chose one nation, Israel. Well, at Pentecost, what's happening? God's calling those nations that He had rejected back to Himself. And you see listed there, men of every, you know, all these nations, He's calling them back. He's providing redemption for them. But at AD 70, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, Satan, the watchers, the demons, they're all defeated. Their purpose, their whole purpose was to stop redemption. They wanted to stop God from bringing man back into his fellowship. That's over. We're in the fellowship with God. It is over. It was completed in AD 70 at the second coming, the resurrection and the judgment, and we now dwell in the presence of God. They've all been destroyed. The battle's over. Through His death, resurrection, and second coming, Yeshua brought God's elect back into fellowship. People, we are in fellowship with Yahweh. There's no power that can hinder that. The damage that Satan, the watchers, and the demon caused has been repaired by Christ. I listened to a clip this week of Hank Hanegraaff debating a preterist. There was a preterist called into the show, you know, and Hank was offering some really lame arguments, you know, that, that just didn't make any sense. But one of his arguments, he's reading Revelation, and God will dwell with them. And I said, I'm saying to myself, and the preterist, ask him, do we not dwell with God now? Ask him, if we not in fellowship with God now? He's not going to deny that we are, but that's the promise of the new covenant. That's the promise of the new heaven and new earth. How do you have that? See, they didn't have that under the old covenant. We do. The new covenant is consummated. We have fellowship with God. So Satan and his cronies, they're all done. They've been defeated. Yeshua said to him, so Satan enters in him, and Yeshua says to him, what you're going to do, do quickly. People, this is a command, all right? The word quickly here is the Greek word takos. that sound familiar to anybody? It means speed, quickness, swiftness, haste. This is the same word used to talk about the second coming, all right? He's coming soon, takos. What he says, what you do, do quickly, takos, do it now. In other words, Yeshua's hour had come. It was essential that Judas carried out the plan without delay. It had to be done that night. Yeshua had to be on the cross that day. So do it quickly. Go get it done. Verse 28 and 29. Now one at the table knew why he had said this. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Yeshua was telling him, buy what we need for the feast. So they tell, they see, he's sending Judas out to do something. They don't know what. Oh, he's going to get some more stuff for the feast tonight. Tomorrow night, actually, it would have been. And they should give something to the poor. They thought, oh, maybe, you know, in the middle of dinner, go give something to the poor. You know, they, they don't know. They don't have a clue. They watched Judas take the bread from Yeshua. They may very well have heard Yeshua tell Judas it's time to go to a mission, but they just didn't understand what it was. Because that was a private conversation. Now, Lazarus knew, no one else did. 
Now, the fact that Judas, again, had the money bag, they trusted him. Okay? The last verse for us today. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So Judas promptly obeys the Lord, and he carries out the betrayal plan. This is foreordained in Scripture. This is laid out. This is prophesied. He tells Judas what you're going to do. Do it now. Judas gets up, and he goes to do it. And Lazarus closes the verse by saying, it was night. We know that, right? Why is he telling us that? Is he just trying to give us a reference to the time of day? It was night. All right, he's talking about darkness here. He's talking about the power of Satan, the struggle between good and evil. In view of Lazarus' light and darkness, Moffat, throughout this book, he wanted to point out the spiritual significance of Judas' departure. He's leaving to betray Christ, and it's night. It's dark. R. Brown summarizes the significance of the coming night this way. He says, with Jesus' permission to Judas and the solemn entrance of Satan into the drama, the hour of darkness, night, has come. In the closing days of his ministry, Yeshua had warned, night is coming. If a man goes walking at night, he will stumble because he has no light in him. Judas is one of those who have preferred darkness to light because their deeds are evil. John's, it was night, is the equivalent of the words of Jesus reported in Gethsemane by Luke, this is your hour and the power of darkness. Yet even at this tragic moment in Jesus' life, as the darkness envelops him, there is the assurance of the prologue. The light shines on in the darkness, for the darkness did not overcome it. If this optimistic note was true of the situation caused by the first sin in the world, it was also true in the night of Jesus' passion. The long night that now descends upon the earth would have its dawn when early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. So it's dark. It's night. He's saying this is darkness. The powers of darkness are coming down and what going to kill our Messiah. And it did. And I don't think, you know, all through this book he uses these innuendos and these double, you know, things to try to show us there's more to the story, all right? And so he's saying it's night, but he's talking about darkness. All right, so let me ask you this. What do we learn from the story of Judas? I think it illustrates what Yeshua had been teaching all through this discourse. And that is, unless Yahweh draws you, you will not come to Him. To me, this shows the absolute depravity of the human heart. How desperately do we need God's sovereign grace in the new birth? Yeshua had chosen Judas as an apostle. He's with them for three years. Saw the miracles. Heard the teachings. Saw the absolute love that Yeshua demonstrated to him and all others. Yet he didn't believe. And he's lost. Why? Because he wasn't given to the Son by the Father. James Montgomery Boyce points out that Judas teaches us that sinners need more than a good example to be saved. Judas had the best example who would ever live, but he's still dead in trespasses and sin. Unless the Holy Spirit imparts new life, sinners are not capable of repenting of sin, believing in Christ, and reforming their lives. 
That is why Yeshua told the religious Nicodemus, do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born from above. You got to have a new birth, people. That's the only way. That's the only way. You can't work your way. You can't study your way. You can't do anything unless God calls you. Now, in closing here, let me just make a little analogy here. I think that what we see in Judas is a dramatic picture of the rejection of Yeshua by the nation Israel. Judah is representing Israel. All they saw, three and a half years, they watched the Messiah heal, raise the dead, feed thousands, do all, and they totally rejected Him. And the darkness in the nation of Israel is about to experience is going to be really tragic. Just as Judas went out and hung himself, they're going to be destroyed because of their rejection. So I think in Judas we see a picture of this nation. He came to his own, but his own received him not. The good news is, but as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even those who believe in his name. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this text. Lord, I thank you for your sovereign choice. I realize, Lord, that in and of myself, I would never have come to you. And so I thank you for your love for me. Thank you, Father, for what we see in this text, that here's a man couldn't have not, could have not have gotten closer to you in any way, shape, or form in a physical sense, and yet never trusted you. It's sad, Lord, and he definitely pictures the nation Israel who saw you, watched you, and rejected you. Lord, thank you for your grace toward us who believe. Thank you for calling us, for bringing us into your family. May we honor you, Lord, through the lives we live. Amen.